Well, I think we are rolling live here, Corey. So I'm going to introduce us and go from there. Okay. Hey, folks, Randy Newberg here. We are recording another episode of the Hunt Talk radio podcast, or as some people know it as Randy Newberg Unfiltered. And uh, today, I'm not going to have to be unfiltered very much because my guest is one of my most... uh, how would I say it? The guy I probably respect as much as anybody in the elk hunting world. Uh, probably the Pied Piper of the elk hunting world if you're into elk calling, which I'm really poor at. So whenever a guy like Corey Jacobson offers to even say hi to me or like he did this year, he came hunting with me, I sit up and I pay attention. Those of you who don't know Corey, which I'm sure all of you do, he is the I don't know, what is it, Corey? Five-time, seven-time, eight-time world elk calling champion? I I mean... Numbers numbers are not relevant. Okay, (laughs) he's so modest. I mean, uh, they don't give Super Bowl rings for elk calling championships, or Corey's fingers would look like, you know, Charles Haley or something. (laughs) And, and, uh, but Corey is not only one of my dear friends um he's one of the best elk hunters i know uh certainly the best elk caller i've ever hunted with and he's the owner of elk101.com used to be the owner of extreme elk magazine extreme elk yep and uh you are the the owner of a lot of things uh and when i say that uh what i mean by that is if if you knew how much knowledge Corey owns in his head and oh, we'll get into this in the podcast <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he he elk hunting and elk calling comes intuitive to some people i'm not one of them but to Corey, he it must come really easy so with that <laughs> Corey jacobson thanks for uh being here from boise idaho well uh, thank you for having me and i'm Going to need a few minutes here to get the red out of my face from that <laughs> incredibly humbling introduction, but thank you. Uh, no, it's well-deserved. Corey and I are, we are sitting at the Mirage Hotel in <laughs> Las Vegas, Nevada, and you guys are probably thinking, what in the heck are they doing in Vegas? Well, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation Elk Camp is this week, and Corey and I are always at Elk Camp. Uh, I did a seminar today called finding elk on public land to kill one you got to find one uh tomorrow Corey's going to defend his elk calling championship and are you doing some seminars while you're here no seminars no, no seminars no seminars holy cow your voice won't be my voice is already shot isn't and it I, crazy how just one hour of talking on a stage over the pa system and everything there your voice just yeah. It's gone. Yeah, they had some bullhorn there yep. today. There's a rodeo going on like right the in the middle of all the exhibitors. There's a, there's a yeah, full yeah. rodeo arena set up. Yeah. yeah, which is cool if you're a rodeo guy, but if you're the dude doing the seminar and every time they blow that horn, everyone jumps out of their seat <laughs> right in the middle of your sentence, you're like, "Did I just say something?" <laughs> so, uh, and uh any of you who do seminars, the biggest fear when you're when you're given a presentation like that is that you look out in the audience and half of them are nodding off. Yeah, it, it's like, oh gosh, I hope nobody's falling asleep. And for me, the, that fear comes from the half that are awake that are actually listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
If I see three quarters of them nodding off, I get much more comfortable. Yeah, then you can say anything you want. And when I sense that, okay, they turned up the heat in the room and it's tough to stay awake, I kind of throw a zinger out there just to see if anyone's paying attention. Uh, or I'll tell a joke about myself or a joke about someone in my family or whatever, and it, you get through that. But anyhow, that's why we are in Vegas right now. Uh, Corey came to Montana this year, and finally we were able to connect our schedules on an archery elk hunt. Uh, and we were going to do this podcast when you were up in Montana elk hunting. But Corey's the, I shouldn't say he's the pickiest guy, but... <laughs> We were just you, about. You blame me for this, but I actually blame you because of all the grouse we ended up getting sidetracked chasing. And we could have done like four episodes <laughs> of a podcast <laughs> just in one day of what we spent chasing grouse. So you're probably right. So, I know you're going to blame me for dragging the hunt out to the very end, but. Yeah, I was going to. <laughs> but you're right. So, people, and someday I'm going to do a grouse episode. And you're going to see why Randy Newberg still has a lot of that big falls minnesota upbringing in him <laughs> because when i see a grouse things get kind of crazy and Corey can attest to that we I, I love grouse hunting during elk season and i have shot plenty of grouse we pulled up to the very first end of the trail road got out and there were three grouse there it, it was like nirvana oh i I, have you, if you've ever seen a young hunting bird dog <laughs> go crazy with his tail wagging, his nose going different directions, and running in circles, imagine imagine that bird dog with a bow in his hand. And that was Randy. That Newberg. was Randy Newberg. I, I, the truck barely even rolled to a stop. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you couldn't go any further because there's a gate on the Forest Service road, and there was a grouse on the other side of the gate. I locked them up, slid it in there sideways, <laughs> and Corey's looking at me like, what's going on? And he was at full draw before his feet hit the ground. <laughs> but I got him. You got him, and we had grouse for dinner. Yeah, and I tell you what, I, there was another big blue grouse. He jumped up on this dead log. What was it, 34 yards away or something? And I saw you drawing a bead on him, and I'm like, well, just center punch him. And Corey's taking his time, taking his time, and all of a sudden, whoop, and he took the thing's head off at 30-some yards. <laughs> I look at the camera guy. I'm like, did you see what I just saw? But Corey walks over there like, oh, yeah, I do this all the time. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I said, I thought you said 44 I was, or 24. I was aiming for his body. <laughs> Uh, but we had more fun in five or six whatever days of elk hunting. It, it was a blast. We were hunting the public land south of where I live in Bozeman. And, yeah, the elk numbers aren't what they used to be there. They're still okay. But when you have the Charlie Daniels of the elk bugle with you, you don't need that many elk. <laughs> and I think in five days... We called in, what, seven bulls within? Six. Six? We okay, heard six within. elk bugle, and I think we got inside bow range of all of them. Yeah, and that was impressive to me. And I, I, in my show, there's a reason you guys don't see me do a lot of elk calling on my show, because I suck at it. I'm, I'm like as marginal of an elk caller as you're ever going to hear. Now, and, now, you want to talk about modesty and humility. 
Randy is, is the last to point out, but I'll be the first to point out, he called in just about every one of those elk. I, I was out front as the shooter. He kept saying, go set up, you shoot, and very graciously put me out front as he stayed behind and did the calling. So regardless of Pied Piper status or whatever nicknames he comes up with, he is the one who is behind the scenes calling in the elk. Yeah, and, and the other thing that you don't see, though, folks, in this episode that's going to air is I'm looking at Corey, and he's giving me this command for a cow call, this command for an aggressive bugle, this command for a not aggressive bugle. So, you know, anyone can make a noise on a flute, but knowing what to say and when to say it is the hard part. And I'll just tell you, if Corey wasn't telling me, hey, beat on that tree with a stick for a while or cow call or scream or whatever, I'd have been out there. I'd have scared most of them away. So <laughs> I appreciate that Corey wants to give me credit for some of that, but it's, it's definitely undeserved. But it, it was a ton of fun. Um, I learned so much, and, and I've told a lot of people since then, is when you hunt like I do, I, I've always, even in archery season, I've kind of been this trying to be silent, get in close, let them tell me where they're at and what they're doing. And hopefully an encounter happens. You know, one out of eight times maybe an encounter happens. And we park at the first trailhead. Corey breaks out the bugle and he's walking over to the edge of the clear cut, like, hey boys, I'm here and there's gonna be some serious butt thumping <laughs> going on. I mean and maybe I'm reading that wrong, Corey, but you're pretty aggressive in, in your elk calling. It seemed anyhow. No, it, and it is, and that's you know, I it may be a downfall. It's I've had a lot of people, my dad including, you know, say you ran past twenty elk today, but I got yeah. to the one that was ready to right. to participate. So yeah, I I definitely cream an area when I go into it, and yeah. by that I mean I take the one that's ready and I'm looking for that specific elk. And so I am aggressive. Uh, if an elk's not ready to play, I'll walk right by him and come back another day. But yeah, I, from the second I step out of the truck. It's uh, it's all business with a bugle tube. It, it, it certainly is, and I, I it just struck me because I'm like this passive guy, and I'll get a bugle 200 yards away, 300 yards away, and then it's like, okay, now what do I do with it? <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound like a hunter. What do I do here? Is is this the real deal? What what's going on? And and as quick as Corey would hear a bugle, we were on the march. We were this. We were that. And I. After the third or fourth day, I'd be like, Corey, what did you just tell that guy? He's mad. <laughs> Corey would look at me and say, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I hope you don't ask me to explain what I said because I don't know. But, but it works. It, well, sometimes. And, and one of the things I observed, and I like to use fishing analogies a lot of times when I compare my elk hunting. And when I go fishing, and I'm, I'm a lake reservoir walleye fisherman, I will go, and if I see fish on my depth finder, my graph, my, my fish finder, and they don't bite within about five minutes, I say, heck with that, they're carp, and I move on. And I keep doing that until, kind of like you say, I find the fish that want to bite. Yep. I'm not going to waste my time on fish that don't want to bite. Totally. It, it just doesn't seem like the thing to do. Yep. Now, if I was there and I had to fill a tag and... I was not confident that there were a lot of elk somewhere or in my calling abilities or whatever. I may focus more time on trying to get in, pattern that elk, set up a tree stand, find a water hole, whatever it is, hunting that elk. 
but I'm like the basketball team that lives and dies by the three-point shot. Yeah. And calling is my three-point shot. And if it's not working that day, it's not working that day. I've <laughs> got to find a bull that can be called in. And so if that means covering 10, 12, 14 miles a day to find one bull that's fired up and bugling, that's, that's yeah. my strategy. And it's probably, you know, desperation, laziness, however you want to look at it. But it's, you know, there's not a whole lot of skill there. It's just run and gun until you find the one. When he says 10, 12, 14 mile days, <laughs> I'm here to tell you folks, it's 10, 12, 14 mile days. If those of you who have not stood next to Corey, he's all legs. He, <laughs> he's like a piece of piano wire. And when he takes off up the ridge, it's just a glimmering dot ahead of you. And you're like, hey, dude, I'm 51 years old. I drive a desk for a living. Hey, just just calm down here. It's not like this bull's going to run away from us. But... No, I, for me, it was such an eye-opening experience about how to be aggressive with elk hunting. And I, you know, well, I think there, you know, when we talk about aggression, it's really important to distinguish between carelessness and aggression. They're two completely different things. Right. And you, and that, I, that was a point I wanted to get to is I, I'm always very cautious of the wind, whether I'm rifle hunting or whether I'm archery hunting, whatever, but you take the wind to a level like nobody I've ever hunted with. And there were times we'd hear a bull that I'm thinking, oh, he just over the ridge, 150 yards. And we're making a big loop three-quarter of a mile. Yeah, that first night, the first bull. Yeah. That bull bugled straight below us, the wind going downhill. He was maybe 300, 400 yards below us. Right. We bugled, gave him a location, and then we boogied across the mountain. We hiked, what, three quarters of a mile over right. and then came back in across from him a right. little lower, and he had come up to that location. We had bugled from Had we stayed there, he would have winded us within 30 seconds. Right. But, yeah, right. we had to get clear around him, let that clear out, and then come in below him, and yeah. it worked. In that morning when we went down in that hole where all the grizzly bears hang out, I was worried about... <laughs> And we thought it had to be like big the Hank. monster bull. I mean, this was the most nasty, ornery sounding bull we heard in the whole week of hunting. And I'm thinking, man, he's just like 100 yards ahead of us in the huckleberry bushes. And all of a sudden, I look and Corey's walking away from him. And we make a big loop and now we're close again. And we keep doing this and doing this. And I see him using his wind checker every minute. And. It's almost the, to your point of aggression versus carelessness. Yep. You you are as aggressive of you your combination of cautious and aggressive is, was to me very striking. And, yeah, and and I push it as hard as I possibly can, knowing what I can and can't get away with. And that's you know I, we mess up way more than we're successful, but you know it. You can't fool the wind. Yeah. You cannot win when an elk's got your wind. Yeah. And I think elk hunters have a tendency to underestimate the nose oh. of an elk. You know, everyone says the whitetail has this amazing nose, and they do. Yep. But an elk, you know, how many times do we hear an elk or we see an elk and we're sure he's coming in and then nothing? It was quiet. He, he, it's not that he saw you, he smelled you. Yep. And he's like, I know what that is. And how an 800-pound animal can walk through the blowdown without making a noise, both coming in and leaving <laughs> you, 
It's still a mystery to me, but it happens. It happens. A lot. Every day. Yeah. And so to, to continue one little bit about that next morning, when we thought we had Big Hank, we eventually, it took us, what, three hours? It, to, yeah. Oh. It was about 11 o'clock before we actually got into a setup that the wind was good. We had shooting lanes. We had a, an area that he was going to be comfortable coming in. And uh, Lauren and I moved ahead and, and were able to pull him in. Randy Randy did the calling and the raking and pulled him in. But yeah, it took three hours to find that that right setup. And we didn't even move a mile in that three hours. Sure. It was a couple miles back out of there, it felt like. <laughs> well, maybe we did. I don't know. But <laughs> No, it but. was cat and mouse through that basin. And we were never more than 300 yards from that bull. Right. But we couldn't. Couldn't and, break him loose. And when I hear this thing decide he's going to come a little closer and he's letting it rip, I'm like, boy, this is the big one. We're going to have our work <laughs> cut out packing this one out of here. I never got to see the bull. But you said it was just a little five-point. A little five-point, yep. It surprised me when I saw him coming. I thought, well, there's this is, has to be the satellite bull sneaking in and the big bull's going to be right behind it. And sure enough, he bugled right there in front of us and it was him. Yeah, Uh. uh Anyhow, that the for a guy who's hunted elk like I have for twenty whatever six twenty five I don't know years, it that week that we spent in late September was really, and I I would encourage anybody who's an elk hunter to go find someone who probably hunts in a style that's foreign to them, because for me that was a it, it just. <laughs> and I'm sure some of my buddies are tired of me talking about it, but I'm like, that was a very uh, perspective-changing, whatever you want to call it. A, a, it was one of those hunts and just being able to observe someone who tries and experiments in ways that I would never do, how different the elk respond. And, and I think a lot of elk hunters, and maybe you, you'd know better than I do, Corey, it seems like a lot of elk hunters think, well, I'll go blow on my call, and if he calls, I'll call him in from 500 yards. Yeah. You know, that might happen on some private exclusive estate, <laughs> but it doesn't happen very often on the public land elk you and I hunt. Not very often. And I've noticed when you hear a bugle, you you are closing the distance in a hurry. I mean, that, that seems to be your next step. Is totally. Heard yeah. a bugle? I got to get as close as possible. Locate the elk and then, yeah. And it's it's that balance of how close can I get without bumping him and pushing him out. And it's a fine, fine line there. If you're 250 yards from him, it might not be enough to put the pressure on him to, to get him to come in. But at the same time, if you forge ahead 30 or 40 yards, you might be putting yourself in a position where now he's got the advantage and he's not going to come in. And yeah. So it's, it's a balancing point. They're trying to find that. But yeah, getting close for me, for calling, especially aggressive calling, you get close and it's your your chances of getting that bull in your lap escalate greatly. Yeah. So I, I also noticed that you bugle a lot more than most guys I know <laughs> and you cow call a lot less. And and you were telling me a story one year that some guy left a note on your truck that yeah. said you bugle too much. Yeah, so that's, you know, I don't know. I, I, I assume he meant that as a derogatory statement. <laughs> I take it as a compliment, but yeah, we're, it, I use, I would say 
80 to 90% of my calling is bugling. And yeah. the cow calls are simply to get the bull to make a noise. Yeah. But from there, my, my communication to that bull is always through a bugle. Yeah. So somewhere in your life, you were probably not as uh, aggressive or you, you didn't use bugling as much as you do now, maybe. Or since you started, if you've just been, a, I love the sound of a bugle, and if he's not going to bugle, I don't want to hunt him. So my dad was an outfitter growing up, so September he was gone. So my mom, the, the, the burden of taking me elk hunting landed on my mom, and she would drive <laughs> me out and sit there sometimes and let me just wander around through the woods trying to figure this elk hunting thing out. Wow, what a great playground. It was. I mean, we lived, I, I was so fortunate growing up, we lived in elk country. So it was 10 minutes from our house, I could be bugling at elk. And so as a sixth grader, however old you are when you're 12, to be able to just go home after school and go hunting every night in September was pretty yeah. special. Very special. But I can remember, I think I was probably a freshman in high school and... Went hunting, didn't hear a single bugle that night, and came back. And as I was coming out, there's a man up there waiting for me. And I came up and he said, you know, you've ruined hunting in this area. And I'm, you know, a 14-year-old kid. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he oh. said, you bugled every three minutes. And he's like, there were more bugles from in this canyon from you tonight than there will be in this canyon all season. And so, I, you know, I realized at that point I had a problem. <laughs> but the way I looked at it was, well, if nothing answered me, I don't know there's a reason to come back here for the rest of the season. So it doesn't matter if I ruined it or not. Yeah. There's no elk here. I'm going somewhere else. And so from the time I was little, I over blew the bugle. Okay. But so, the, it, the it, difference it, is, is that somewhere along the line, I learned what to say and, and to make it more effective. And, and when does I? And when it, to say. It, Do you think the timing of when you reply yeah, is as important as how you reply uh, i think it's a combination of both but at the same time i think it's neither um i don't know there's there's a lot of theories out there on elk language mm -hmm. on you know what this sound means or that sound means right i'm a pretty simple person i'm uh most people would probably think not very intelligent <laughs> and so i have to dummy things way down so that i can understand it and have a chance I look at it as elk respond off of emotion, not language. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily what you say specifically as far as, hey, what did that sound actually mean? It's more the emotion that you put into it. And if you bugle and do the regular just scale bugle that goes up and comes down and it's like, well, that sounded good, that's great. But when I bugle, I want people to know man, veins are popping out on his forehead. He's really putting some effort into that. And the elk can tell that same, that same emotion. So uh -huh. it's not so much the timing, the language, as much as if a bull's in close and I cow call to him and he responds while he's still responding, I want to scream at him with emotion yeah. because that's telling him, you just did something that made me really mad. Yeah. And I want to fight about it. <laughs> and outside of that, I don't know what's going yeah. through his mind other than his eyes roll back in his head and he comes running in and his senses are down. And now I have at least somewhat of a chance being an aggressive, sometimes careless hunter to have a chance at this elk. And right. so, yeah, it's, you know, I, I think that I pieced it together through a lot of error. Yeah. So it, it's not like elk sit there and make these classic bugles like they're reciting Shakespeare in the right. world of elk. They respond to things like, I'm mad, dude. Let's throw down here. I'm coming in. 
Totally. It, it's, it's just that response. It's, yep. it's an instinctive, natural response where he says, I've had enough. I'm coming in. Yep. And, and what that does for me, you know, you mentioned it's, it's important. Find somebody that hunts a different style than you do and hunt from them. There's so much value in that because I consider myself still after, you know, 30 years of elk hunting, a novice student of this game. And anything I can glean from somebody else's experience that is different, additive, alternative, anything like that, anything I can add to my arsenal is only going to make me a better hunter. On that day when elk aren't calling or they aren't responding to emotion or whatever it is, I've got more tricks that I can pull out and and try to improve that success. So it's not like the way I hunt is the right way. It's not like it works every time, but being simplistic like I am, being, I I can't handle a script. I can't handle, you know, trying to say, okay, what sound did he make? I need to make this sound. I want it to be simple. And this is probably the most efficient. And that's just come through a lot of trial and error. Totally. Okay. So the, a, a lot the, of the, error, mostly. The, <laughs> <laughs> so the guy who grew up in Idaho like you did with elk in your backyard certainly has a head start over the guy who grew up, say, in my home where I grew up in Minnesota who doesn't have any elk to experiment with. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, you know, there, there, there are things you can learn, mm-hmm. and that's important. Right. But there are still things you have to experience to be able to put that learning into action right. and, you know... Some of us are quicker learners. It took me 10 years of elk hunting to kill my first elk. All, all, you were trying it all with a bow or was it? All with a bow. Well, okay. yeah. Even during rifle season, sometimes, you know, yeah. any weapon season, I was stubborn enough that I thought I could kill one with a bow. And so, yeah, I, I did, but I had opportunities um, messed up and finally it clicked. And once it clicks, it seems like, you know, it gets a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, that's with so many things in life. You yeah. you try and try, you bang your head on the door, yes, trying, trying, and all of a sudden the door opens up, and you're like, "Oh, it's not like you find the magic formula that works. It's just it all makes sense and comes together." Yeah, and you see where to focus, what to get rid of, and you know I'm still fine tuning. Well, yeah, uh, you you. If you're fine tuning, then I'm not even rough tuning. Yeah, so, <laughs> but. Anyhow, you know, for for the listener here, I I want to get into some of these more. Uh, how would I say? I I don't want to get into it. You know, tips, tactic, oh, cow call this, cow call that, make this type of variation. That's been hashed over forever. Um, I want to talk about this. You know, for me, anyhow, and, and this is why I, I want to approach it this way. And the podcast is. My greatest learning experiences come from failures. Totally. I I think of just about everything that I now do instinctively, it wasn't because I did it instinctively before. It's because I screwed something up. <laughs> Enough times. <laughs> yeah, it, and the lesson was driven home because of that yep. kick in the gut of, oh, man, I had it, and I screwed it up. And so I don't know if there's a, an experience in your elk hunting times where, and, and maybe <laughs> you just gave me that look like, oh, well, don't I, go I don't there, Randy, no. Could, yeah, not just one. <laughs> which of the 40 you want me to talk about? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and maybe I'll start with, and you said you hunted elk 10 years before you killed one. 
Um, I didn't take up archery hunting until later in my hunting life. And I hunted elk for seven years before I killed one uh, with a rifle. And I hunted hard. I mean, I, I'd moved to Montana. I'd, went, I'd left Minnesota, went to college in Nevada, and then I moved to Montana. And my goal in life outside of my wife, my son, and my, my work and my family was Randy had to kill a bull elk to validate <laughs> that he wasn't a complete idiot. <laughs> and I can't even tell you how many crazy things I tried, how many stupid things I did. Um, but I was what I'd call a new elk hunter. Yeah. It, in your observation or if you hunt with new people or you talk or interact with them, is there some misconception out there that a lot of new elk hunters have that is common and it's something that they just got to figure out a way through? Or if, is it, I guess maybe a better way to say it is, do new elk hunters do a certain thing that just you look at it and say, someday they'll realize that's the wrong <laughs> thing to do? You know, there there are a few things that, I can look back on and oh, I guess it's different for every situation, every person, but I guess there are some things that successful, consistently successful elk hunters on public land do that sometimes take a little bit of trial and error to get to. I think for a new hunter, the thing I see most that um, I would just remind, remind, you know, pound into the head if, if you can, the wind, number one. You will never beat the wind. There's yep. no point even dropping down into a canyon three miles and getting an elk bugle and trying to approach it with the wind blowing towards it because you've just wasted that whole hunt. It's not going to work out. So like you said, we sometimes will leave that elk overnight. We will go and come back the next morning, the wind's good, or we will walk clear around the canyon to get to the other side because you have no chance. So at least doing that, there, there's still a chance. So the wind is number one. Uh, another thing that I really... You know, it's, again, that fine line, but aggression. And I think a lot of new elk hunters are not aggressive. And and the primary reason of that is confidence. Right. And I really think that confidence is the key. And it's hard to say, well, how do you gain confidence? Because if you've never been successful, is it is it fair to think that you can be confident? And absolutely it is. And that confidence comes from applying those lessons that you learn line upon line until they build up to to a point where you're confident. And that's, you know, what we talked about earlier. At some point it clicks. And I don't think it's any secret formula that clicks. I don't think it's, I found the tactic that works every time. I think it's you get to a point where when you step into the elk woods, you're like, it's going to happen. It might not be today, but I'm going to be persistent enough because I'm confident enough that sometime in the next five days, I'm going to be presented with an opportunity. And then that's a whole nother story is capitalizing on that opportunity. But and, and that's very much a parallel to how I kind of got over that first hurdle of elk hunting. I thought there were shortcuts. I thought you could buy this gizmo or this gadget, or if you read this magazine article, or, okay, I must be hunting in the wrong spots. Or, <laughs> I mean, I was hunting in some of the best elk country in America. Yeah. So it wasn't that. I, I had every kind of doodad, thingamajabby you could think of <laughs> and that wasn't doing it and i again i'll go back to my walleye fishing you know i grew up walleye fishing in northern minnesota and i one summer i told my wife i said i'm killing an elk this fall 
And she's like, well, it's June, you know, <laughs> God, get over it. And I, I realized that in my walleye fishing, I understood the behaviors of walleyes. I understood their needs. I understood their biology. I understood everything about a walleye. And because I had that much information, I was confident. I mean, that knowledge brought forth the confidence to say, you know what, these walleyes are going to be in eight feet of water in late May because they've just spawned and they're staging out there. Even though I didn't find them right away, I had the confidence because of the knowledge that I had acquired. And like you said, knowledge equals confidence, which eventually equals success. And, and, and then success builds that confidence more. And so it's, it, yeah, it's, it, it it's yeah, comes full circle. And that's when the snowball happens. And it's like, hey, consistency happens at this point. Yeah. And, and so that summer, I went and bought a book by Jack Ward Thomas. Uh, he, I think it was called uh, Ecology of Elk or Elk Ecology or something like that. And I read that. And I sat down and I, I took just copious notes of, <laughs> okay, what are the needs of these elk at certain times of year? And I, he went into all this detail about food preferences at certain times of year, this food versus that food. And I, I realized, you know what, Randy? When you learn what an elk needs at a certain time of year, you can then solve the riddle a whole lot easier versus not doing that homework, not doing that study, not yep. investing the time to know what elk do at the time of year you're hunting them. First day of elk season in Montana, I sleep at the trailhead. I walk out to my favorite rock where I doubted there were any elk there because I'd hunted there many years before. I had not killed an elk, but I'd, I'd see tracks. I'm like, what do they do? They fly away when I show up here? <laughs> I'm like, all right, these elk are going to be here for this reason because it's a, a, a post-rut period, all right? The bulls are going to be looking. They're going to be kind of heading to their sanctuary areas. They're going to need some feed, so I go and set up in this spot. By 11 o'clock the next morning, or, or that morning, I'm standing over my first bull elk getting ready to notch my tag. And that was, for me, that kind of where the snowball started. Yep. It was like, Randy think about this but just don't walk into the woods and walk around like this is a random event it's gotta be a strategy right and actually the strategy i use even today is so simple that when i was doing the seminar today i'm sure some of these people are looking at him like hey, <laughs> i sat through here for this what yeah. where's the value yeah. and that's i'm the same way i simplify it so much that sometimes the value i think is hey step back and start over here you know you you've right. gone you're, you're complicating it too much. Yep. Hit the reset button and think about one or two key points that will get you to success. Yep. Yep. And then start worrying about some of this other minutia. First off, you take, you know, you're going back to fishing, you can have the best bait in the world and the hungriest fish in the world, but if they aren't there, you right. aren't going to catch one. You aren't right. going to get a bite. Yeah. And on the flip side, if you go into there where, you know, there's a rich pool of fish and you don't have the right bait or... You know, those fish have plenty of food and they just aren't hungry right then. It's not going to matter. So all of those pieces come together. You've got to find the elk first. You've got to know where they're going to be right. and get in there. But you can't even employ your tactics until you're in that, that area, in that situation. Then it becomes a matter of fine-tuning the tactics and 
yep. tactics without elk aren't going to work, and elk without tactics aren't going to work. So it's a there's a puzzle there that yeah, and that's where if it, because of doing the TV show, I've if there's one place in the elk hunting uh, sphere of knowledge that I've been forced to ramp up my learning curve, it's finding where elk will be at whatever time of year. Uh, and short of archery season, in rifle season, I think elk are one of the easiest animals to kill once you find them. <laughs> no, yeah, with a bow, that's all different. Well, no, and I, and I laugh because I've killed one elk with a, with a rifle in my life. Uh-huh. My 12-year-old son has now killed more elk than I have with a rifle. <laughs> and for me, when he started hunting, I've archery hunted my whole life. And so rifle hunting was intimidating for me. When he got old enough to hunt, I said, buddy, I'm sorry. I'm the wrong guy. I'm not a good elk hunter because he couldn't pull back enough weight on his bow. It was so scary to me. I had so much, uh, so little confidence in my rifle hunting abilities that I didn't know where to find elk. I can take a bugle and stand on a ridge and tell you if there's an elk down there or not in September. October when they aren't bugling, it's a different ball game. So I relied heavily on, on some of the things that you've wrote and talked about on how to find elk at different times. And it's because of that information that I was able to take away with previous experiences from archery hunting and and those things that I've learned over the years that the second day out with an 11-year-old, he killed his first elk. This year, the first morning out, literally, I I kid you not, I read an article that you wrote on how to find elk at different times of the year the night before we went hunting. (laughs) And the next morning, my son shot a six-point bull with his rifle. And so, you know, it's... There are skills you can have, but I was missing that one component of how do I find elk in late October? Yeah. And, and by reading one simple article that tapped into your your knowledge database, it gave me all the tools I needed to be able to go out and have confidence and to be successful with an 11 or a 12-year-old boy who doesn't have any yeah. any experience. He has a lot of confidence because of his <laughs> because of what's happened in yeah. the last 12 months, but well, maybe that was just a random piece of luck that that what Randy happened to write somehow that day there was an elk. You know what? I will take luck over skill every day of the month of September. So, but but that gets to your point of that you were just making there in the fishing analogy of if there are not elk where you're at, you can be the best caller in the world, you can be the best long range shooter in the world, you can be whatever, but you can't kill an elk that you can't find. Yeah. And that's the point of my seminar today and point of just about all my seminars and in the book that we're going to have out in the next, uh, hopefully six or seven months is to kill one, you have to find one. And if you don't know where to find them in the five se- I break it down into five seasons and that might've been the article you were reading. It was, yep. Um, for me, there's the early season, which is like August. There's the pre-rut, which is late August, early September. There's the peak rut, which is like mid-September to, you know, early October, some sometime in there. Then there's the post-rut, which is, you know, October 10th towards the end of October. And then there's what I call the late season, which is anything after November 1st. And I see people who will hunt elk in the December or November, whatever it is, late season, in the same place as they were hunting them in the, in the peak rut. <laughs> Guess what, folks? They have a completely different need in November yep. than what their primary need was in September. Their Not prim- only need, well, yes, and the need drives where they're going to be. The herd dynamics of the bulls are by themselves in that pre-rut. 
they're, they're in bachelor groups. The cows are down where they have their calves, and then the rut starts kicking in. They move locations, yep. and they go find those cows. Well, late season like that, they go off by themselves again. again. Right. And those cows are in different locations, which none of it is necessarily where the rut happened in September. And so there's understanding those dynamics of what elk are doing, why they're doing it, feed-based, winter range-based, you know, all these different things cover uh, water in, in the pre, all of those different aspects, it really simplify. It really does. The elk can't be here during this time of year because of this, or the elk are going to be here. And so, yeah, the, a lot of those points that you made in that article were the light bulb went off for me. I said, okay, here's where they were in September. I need to go here and look for them. And sure enough, I mean, we were into elk within three quarters of a mile of the truck right at daylight the first morning, yeah. having and, never scouted or set foot there. And, and, I, I'm thankful. I, I, I'm almost blushing that Corey would even attribute anything like that to something, some scribing I wrote on the back of a napkin. But <laughs> let's tell the rest of the story, though. Your son's 12 years old, and I don't want, you know, parent custody services to show up and take your son away because he earned that. Because of the pain I inflicted upon him. Yeah. I mean, how. For, tell a little bit about how how gruesome it, or, or uh, how grueling it was, but what did he think of that? Did he think that was that this was cool? He uh, at one point I think he said this is the hardest thing I've ever done, uh-huh. and I would hate to give somebody an elk hunting experience without having them say that at least once yeah. because elk hunting is tough, yeah. and for him, he has logged a total of well. Not very many days <laughs> actually in the woods with a with a weapon in his hand and had great success. So for him, the 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 success, the harvest part of the hunt seems a little bit easier than it really is right now. Yeah. He's gonna learn the hard way. There is no doubt there will be years <laughs> of failure that build him back up. But yeah, it, it was. We did ten point three miles on GPS the day that he shot that bull. Wow. And it was not easy country. We were up in rocks. We were coming off of a shale rock bluff when we spotted his bull. And he shot, he dug his heels in and locked himself back into the cliff. And we packed up, stacked up two backpacks for him to get a rest on and shot off of that. He almost fell down the mountain, you know, trying to celebrate after he shot it there. And I mean, (laughs) not to the point where he was in danger of tumbling off a cliff, but it it was a steep hill. Um, we, we got there, it was about an hour before dark. We quartered it, we hung it in a tree and we went out that night through the blowdowns and, and everything in the dark, uh, and came in the next day to pack it out. And it was 6.3 miles of packing his elk out the next day. Wow. And he's, and 12? he's 12. And so I loaded him up with a hind quarter, bone, we boned everything out the next yeah. morning because being super dad, I thought one trip out of here is all we've oh, got. No. <laughs> I have packed I have packed multiple elk out in one trip with another partner. Right. When that partner's an adult, it's, it's not much fun. Right. When that partner's 12, it's, no, I loaded too much on him. Yeah. So I, I gave him a hind quarter boned out and the head and the antlers. And How far did he make it? We made it about 10 feet and he said, Dad, I think there's something wrong with my hip. And he said, it, it feels like it's tingling and burning, but it's not hot. And I said, buddy, that's your hip flexor. You're going to get to know it really well over the next several <laughs> miles. And uh, he, he kept what he was a trooper. We did end up dropping when we got to the really steep part. We dropped part of his pack and, and shuttled it down that steep part. But 
He earned it. I introduced him to trekking poles, uh-huh. and I couldn't get him out of his hands. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, he was leaning on them, um, but it was, it was rugged. Yeah. He earned it. He really did. That's that's a special experience for for anybody who gets to shoot their first elk. It's a special experience for us who are the mentors or fathers uh, when our our kids shoot their first elk, and uh, it. There's, there's a part of me that is so grateful that elk hunting was so difficult for me that I had to work so hard to kill my first bull. Because I think a lot of people, that you, everything you do in life, you have to have this mental mindset to be successful. And I think a lot of people watch too many TV shows <laughs> or read too many articles, and they think they're just going to go out there in the first day, they're going to shoot an elk half mile from the trailhead. And when that doesn't happen, they get discouraged. Yeah. And, and, and it becomes it, a negative experience. That hunt becomes a negative experience rather than looking at it as I am gaining information, experience every day. I need to apply the failures of today. I didn't find elk. I've got to find elk. That's that's the lesson. That's the failure of today. I didn't find elk. Tomorrow I have to find elk. Right. And then you find elk and they wind you. And that's the lesson. You just have to keep applying those lessons of failure and looking at them as this isn't failure, this is me improving, and and there's a positive there. Yeah, and th- there are those days, and, and you and I both hunt exclusively public land. There are those days, and I'll admit it, that I've been busting my hump, and we've been doing these, you know, like two weeks ago in Wyoming. We did a 14-mile day in the snow one day in the mountains, <laughs> and the wind blew 35 miles an hour. When I got back that night, I I can I'll, I'll admit that I said I understand why people go go and pay money to get exclusive access to elk that aren't as pressured or as spooky or whatever, <laughs> but I I know that my gratification of hunting and, and why I hunt in large part comes because of the challenge that it represents, the okay. effort required, the in. I, that that first bull I shot was just a little raghorn four by five, but I look at the pictures of that bull and it's still one of my greatest hunting accomplishments. Since then, I've shot I don't know how many bulls that are you know really nice bulls, and they're all great memories. But none of them are on the same scale of personal gratification as when I solved the riddle and just kept pushing forward, pushing forward. And that then, I, over the, you know, after shooting one, and then it's like the dominoes were all in place. It was just elk after elk after elk after elk. And a lot of people have asked me, and I never really took time to think about it. They're like, well, how did all of a sudden it become so easy? And I think part of it, not all of it, but part of it was I now had the proper expectation of what investment of effort and time it was going to take to be successful on public land. Before then, I don't think I had set my mind to the proper expectation. Totally. And and I think we as humans, we're just, it's our nature. If if our expectations are not met, we get discouraged. And so if you set your expectations maybe too low or, or, if you set them too low, you never get to the point where you're going to reach that success. If you set them too high and don't expect failures along the way, 
you get disappointed and you give up. And so that's, yeah, success rates are what, 10, 12%, something like right. that. Yeah. I don't want to be in that 90% echelon right there. I, I don't want to be in there. I don't want to be the one that goes once every 10 years and kills an elk. Right. And, that means I have to try harder than average. Yeah. And in that, I think that's a big part of, you know, and I don't know if the axiom is true, but they say 90% of the elk are killed by 10% of the yeah. hunters. And, you know, it's it's probably not that. It's probably not a factual statistic. Right. Maybe it's 70% are killed by yeah. 30%. I don't know. But all of the guys I know who hunt public land exclusively and year after year, place after place, whether it's archery season, rifle season, whether it's Arizona or Idaho, whether it's, you know, early season or late season, they they seem to figure it out and fill a tag. Those are the people who are they mentally they're strong they they don't have this expectation that it's going to be easy yeah someday just opening morning there he is boom you're yeah. done but that's you you kind of approach it as that was a gift <laughs> yeah I, a big gift. right the expectation is i'm going to do 10 miles a day in brutal conditions up and down competing with other hunters for five days before i get an encounter in in my mind, if I get one encounter in five days, that's that's kind of the norm. Fortunately, good luck, whatever. I I get encounters more frequently than that. But my mental expectation is, you know, hey, all right, it's day three. I haven't had a good encounter yet. That's all right. I you know, it might you take know two more. And I think to to build on that, what's amazing to me is after thirty years of elk hunting my expectation hasn't changed. My confidence doesn't lower my expectation of how long it's going to yep. take. My my wife, so my 12-year-old's in school, he's in sports, everything, so it leaves me with like a Friday night and a Saturday morning to hunt with him on the weekends. That's that's all we get. And my wife's like, just take him up tonight and you can you know hunt tonight and come back tomorrow morning. I'm like, you don't understand. We need a solid five days in a row to string this together to really have a chance. In my mind, we're wasting our time. She's like, just go and... Maybe it'll happen, spend the time with them. But that expectation for me is I'm wasting my time in 24 hours to go and try to do an elk hunt. I need five days just to find the elk, to hunt the elk, to make a few mistakes, to put it together and have a chance being successful. And obviously his, his uh, <laughs> track record is blowing my expectations out of the water, which is going to make the failure part that much more painful for him. But Yeah. Oh, well, that's just, I, I think they, that's one of the beauties of elk hunting is elk hunting there there's no hunting i do and i've not been able to hunt any of the wild sheep because i've never drawn a tag so i can't speak to that but there is over the course of a long period of hunts uh of multiple elk hunts there's no hunting i do where the reward is earned yeah occasionally you get lucky but over the course of many hunts elk force you to earn it and I think that's that's the allure of elk hunting is, yes, the country is beautiful, the experience, all of that, but there's a conflict there. There's a struggle to get to success. And, you know, the, the quote is, the greater the conflict, the greater the victory or, or whatever. Right. Elk hunting epitome, that's the epitome of elk hunting because there is a struggle and there is an elation when you're successful and it finally comes together you realize this was earned. Yeah, and, and to me, that's why I, 
and you and I were talking about this before we turned the podcast on is, you know, I don't like to get into the quantitative stuff. I, I don't like scores. To, to me, score, yeah, it's this relative thing hunters talk about. But the, to your point there of the the reward is in the effort given and the trials and tribulations, the trail it took you to become successful. That's where if someone gives that effort, like on my first three bulls were all raghorns, there, those were trophies to me, yeah. you know, in the definition of what I give a trophy. Totally. And anybody who shoots an elk on public land should be dancing up and down <laughs> because that's an accomplishment. Absolutely. And I don't care if it's a spike, a cow, a raghorn, or a 380-inch bull. Yep. It, and well, it, I just it, think that the experience and the adventure should be what define the trophy, not an inch or a number. Right. It, and that's, you know, this year is a prime example. I've shot a lot of elk. We went to Wyoming. I had an expectation in my mind of what I wanted to shoot, not a minimum score or anything, but just a, a representative bull. And the bull that I shot, a lot of people would probably say, I wouldn't shoot that on the last day of a public land road, you know, whatever it is. But the experience I had, that was, you know, the video we got six yards frontal, just the bull dropped right there within 35 yards. Um, the struggles that we'd had to get to that point, all of that, that bull is not going to score great. But for me, that was a trophy. The experience of it all, that, that's a memorable hunt for me. Yeah. And it's, it's not the size of the elk that makes the hunt memorable. I, I couldn't agree more. So, it, all right, we've, we got off on, on some really valuable <laughs> stuff, I think, there in between the, the question. I, I asked the question, what's the most common mistake or the common thing that new hunters do that they should do differently? Did I answer that or did I you avoid did. that? Okay. No, no, we, you did, and it led us down a really great path. Um, but the next question was, you know, what's the most common mistake or common thing that experienced elk hunters do mm. that they should do differently? Uh, I will speak from experience, not saying <laughs> I'm an experienced elk hunter, but, you but are from experience, um, you know, I have learned to never quit learning. Yeah. And I think if we think we have elk figured out, we're going to get a big dose of humble pie. Because it changes every day. Every elk is different. Every situation, every area, every day can change. So if we get in a rut and say, this is all I'm going to do. I'm only going to aggressively bugle to kill elk. It's not going to happen every time. And so I think sometimes we get stuck in a, in a rut, in a pattern, in a habit. Um, the other thing I think is thinking I've hunted this area for 10 years or for 15 years. I don't need to scout. I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to show up there and put all my eggs in that basket and go hunting. And for me, I've learned some the hard way sometimes the combination of those two mistakes of showing up there off of somebody else's information from the last 10 years or off of my own experience for the last 10 years, showing up there and then being stuck there saying, I've just got to keep going. They're going to be here. And then pretty soon six days is up and you haven't found the elk yet. So I think... Um, Maybe the not necessarily the mistake, but the thing to learn from that is to stay versatile, to um, know that there's elk there. If you can scout, you know, even a yeah. day of scouting oh, it's worth, is worth six oh, days of hunting. Right, because that day of scouting, I don't know how many times we've been out there where that day of scouting has 
saved me from investing two or three days of wasted time hunting somewhere where there weren't going to be any elk. It's much better to wander for three days trying to find elk than to spend three days in an area where there are no elk. Right. Because oh. you're going to have a you're going to have an encounter sometime in that wandering. Whereas if you're stuck in an area where there's no elk, it's and then you get desperate. Then you start running around and just not thinking clearly, and pretty soon your your week's gone, and yeah, so's your tag. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and when I wrote that question down, it reminded me. It reminded me. I was on the Meat Eater podcast with Steve Ranella, and Steve, he and I have you know talked many times, not just on podcasts but in other places uh, about our hunting because we both get to travel a lot to hunt, and he didn't quite ask it as to what what was the most common mistake he he worded the question differently he said what in your hunting has taught you the most or or made you the best the, the, you know, not the best elk hunter. what what was the best thing you've done to improve your knowledge and, and ability to be an elk hunter and it, it caught me a little off guard and, and because i I had to think about it. I'm like, hmm, boy. I, I was thinking, was there one profound moment that, oh, yeah, that was it. And it really wasn't. And and the answer I gave Steve, and I, since I thought about it uh, since then, uh, I probably would have worded it slightly differently. But for me, what, what has made me more successful as an elk hunter, and like you, I, I'm the last guy who's going to consider myself an elk expert. I'm just a guy who gets to go on five to six elk hunts, six elk hunts a year. Who through that trial and error, you learn a little bit. Yep. And if it, you don't, <laughs> yeah, if you don't, you're never gonna be there. Yeah, you're you're gonna have a lot of explaining to do. But for me, what has really helped me uh, be more confident and not, I guess confident that I have some knowledge is hunting elk in multiple different locations in multiple different seasons. Uh, I've hunted elk in every Western state, uh, every Rocky mountain state with the exception of your home state of Idaho. I'm not sure why they don't want my money. I, I apply every year and every year I'm like, well, I'll apply in an easier to draw unit and an easier to draw unit. But anyhow, well, the, Randy, like 80% of the state is over the counter. So, you just buy a tag and come over there. All right. Well, let's maybe <laughs> next year we're going to hunt in Idaho instead of Montana. But to to that point, uh, over the course of of hunting multiple states, and even before I started the TV show in two thousand eight, I I did a lot of hunting in multiple states. Uh, I mean, one year I lucked out. I drew an early rifle tag in Arizona, two thousand five, <laughs> unit ten, early rifle elk. But before I even applied for that one, I drew I I think the results from Nevada were out in April or or mid May or something. I'm like, holy crap! I drew a Nevada bull elk tag. I call my buddy who lives in Williams, Arizona. I'm like, look, if I draw another elk tag, my wife's gonna kill me. <laughs> so where do I apply where I'm still gonna get a bonus point and I will never draw? He's like, well, that's easy. Put in for early rifle in Unit Ten. Okay, send my money in. Everyone's like, yeah, I got my refund. Is that 2005? 2005, yeah. So that was the, the USO debacle there where they had to add a whole bunch of non-resident tags. Exactly. Yep. I drew the, I drew Arizona that same year. Did you? Unit one with three okay. points. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. And lo and behold, 
I draw Arizona the same year. I, I draw Arizona early rifle. I got Nevada. And the only place I'd ever hunted elk to that point was Montana. And I went on those hunts, and I had great hunts, and I, I shot nice bulls in both of them. Um, but a part of me was thinking, you know what, Randy? You would have been better off if you would have been hunting in these southern places before. If you would have had some failures there that would have taught you a few lessons. Yeah. If if you would have went there and realized, okay, elk are kind of the same. They have the same needs, but they're going to be in different locations to satisfy those needs in Arizona than they are in Montana. Well, just the demographics of the herd changes everything. Yeah. The number of, you know, bull to cow ratio, age class of the bulls, the, the weather affecting the rut timing, all these different things that... Yeah. Yeah. So it's a whole other game. It, it is. And so taking that to its next step where, okay, since then I've hunted Utah, Colorado many times, New Mexico many times. I've helped friends hunt uh, Arizona. I've I've drawn Arizona four more times since then. Uh, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> I've hunted. Hold, no, hold on. <laughs> You've drawn Arizona five times in the last 10 years. That's statistically impossible, Randy. No, it's not. <laughs> not, if you, not if you focus on the late hunt. I mean, I'll never draw another early rifle tag there again, and, and I'm grateful that I drew. But um, having all those tags in different seasons, in different states, has really forced me that when I show up, and I, I tell people this is Randy's really scratched out back of the napkin plan is <laughs> – First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to figure it out. In other words, what's going on there, and that's usually my scouting day. Then I'm going to sort it out. By sort it out, I mean I'm going to take everything I learned in my scouting, and I'm going to sort out what's important what's not important for this hunt. And hopefully in the last three or four days, I'm going to pack it out. And by hunting in multiple places, archery seasons, rifle seasons, whatever, late seasons, early seasons, it's really helped me develop a strategy and in a way to analyze so that with the TV show, when we show up, I, I mean, so many times we show up in a place we've never been. Yep. Got five days. I got to find elk, have some encounters on film, and we got to kill something within five days. Yep. You can't just randomly hope for good luck every hunt. And that's, to me, that's part of the adventure. I get emails daily. Hey, can you point me? into some GPS coordinates where I can find elk in Montana. I'm coming I'm coming from out of state. I don't have time to scout. Could you just get me into a drainage that you know has some elk? You're missing the the learning, <laughs> you're missing the most valuable data that you can gain in ex, in experience. Yeah, I I agree and and I I think it was a one or two podcasts ago. Someone had sent me a, an email question saying, "Why don't you tell people where you yep. hunt?" Because, to your point, one, that's the huge part of the learning experience that's going to benefit you for every future hunt is having to learn how to do this research and, and, and gather that information. So that's a big part of why we don't do it. The other is, you know, if I told you this GPS coordinate, next year on opening day, there'd be 25 <laughs> rigs parked right there. And that, it, would, that wouldn't be fair to the people who hunt that area. It blew me away this year in Montana that we would stand up on a ridge and Randy's camera guy would be panning these landmarks that I'm like, anybody can figure out where we are. Are you sure you want to, let's go over here for the interview piece because you've got this lake in the background and 
And, and why was it that you were okay with, with sharing that with everyone? Because most people aren't willing to go where we were at. Because of? Grizzly bears. Grizzly bears. <laughs> so, yeah. Darn my fears of rattlesnakes and grizzly bears. But no, and it was, it's, you know, there are some places that are sacred. Other places we know that we could, we could draw a picture and people either aren't going to go there because it's too steep, it's too hard to get in there, yep. or there's other, other things that are going to keep them out of like grizzly bears or rattlesnakes. And then, you know, it, it is, it's, we have spent time, we have learned by trial and error. And these areas, a lot of times year after year produce, and all it takes is one or two more guys going in there, letting the wind get the elk and, and they're out of there. And then that changes our plans. And so it's, there's an adventure in finding your own areas. Now, yes, I do my research. I ask questions, you know, what are the elk herds like in this unit? Those are good questions to ask, to, to call up and say, I've never elk hunted before. Can you draw me a map and point me right where to go? That's probably not the right approach to. No, and, and just personally, when I get that, because I get that email a lot also, I just say, you know, I'm not going to deprive this person of the benefit and the value of the experience of having to figure it out themselves. Yeah, I'll give them some general ideas, but I'm like you, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not right you know this drainage you yep. know the south fork of you know dead bear creek or something yep. no I, i'm just not gonna do that and you know everybody's got their pencils on wrote down south fork of dead bear creek <laughs> <laughs> well i i am going to tell people because a couple people have figured this out with our tv show do not trust every image you see <laughs> in randy newberg's tv show because a lot of times we shoot something and we will go to a different part of the mountain range, and we will find a very scenic and recognizable place, and we'll film a bunch of scenics there, and people think that's where we're hunting. Yep. Little do they know, we were 14 miles away from there. <laughs> so, and part of that is just because for the people who have done the homework and invested their time to learn that area, I don't want my TV show to be this, go right here totally. and screw it up for those guys yep so wow we're we're talking some good stuff here this might be two podcasts here <laughs> but uh so we we talked about what's the most common mistake new hunters make or what they could do differently and the same for experienced hunters uh now that you're at this point in your hunting life Corey, whenever something goes snare wire is there when it when it happens, do you say, oh, "Dang, I did that again," or "I failed to consider <laughs> that again"? Is there is there any common thing that even at this point in your hunting life, you you find that you, <laughs> excitement takes over, or this or that, or you know, there are a lot of th wind is is number one, and it's out of my control to a degree. But there are a lot of things I've learned to be able to control the wind. And it's, you know, it's not some psychomental thing that, hey, I can control the wind, but just uh, recognizing what thermals are doing. And instead of being above the elk when the thermals are coming up, if the thermals change, now all of a sudden it's going down, getting down on the same level of the elk and coming across to it. So if thermals change, it's an up-down change, and it still doesn't blow the elk. You know, little things like that that, that yeah, I think yeah. applying it, it limits the effect that wind had the negative effect wind can have on your thermals can have um yeah there's you know it, it seems like every year the first two or three days out elk hunting i'm kicking myself saying 
I'm such a novice. <laughs> Did I really forget in the last 12 months that that's the dumbest thing that I can do in the elk woods. Why did I just do that? And it's always on the biggest bulls, it seems like, that I do those those stupid things. But yeah, I, I am not anywhere near to a point where I can say I don't make dumb mistakes because yeah. I do. It's I, And I'm in that same boat. And it's like, just because I have a TV show doesn't mean that I've got a clue. I mean, I... My wife at times will say, hey, we'll be fishing. And I've been walleye fishing longer than I've been elk hunting. She'll be like, do you have a clue? <laughs> you know, we've, we've been out here for 10 hours and we haven't had a bite yet. That's the best thing about wives is just their ability to keep us humble. Oh, isn't that truth? They know it. <laughs> and they know the button to hit. They they got us dialed in. But, you know, since I asked you that, I, as you were answering the question, I'm thinking, okay, Randy, what's probably the one thing that you hang yourself up on and it causes you to have either you got to work harder to have success or, or it messes up your success and it's probably i i rely too much on the idea that everything this year is going to be the same as last year because there are variables to oh, the change the landscape whether it's drought whether it's flood whether it, you know whatever it might have been a fire i if ever i find myself uh making the same mistake not every time at the same or every year at in the same hunting location what it is kind of is a general pattern that okay yeah two years ago in colorado when i had this over-the-counter tag there were elk there so rather than scout as hard yep. as i should have or research as hard as i should have of what was the change this year oh gee season open five days later or you know oh muzzleloader yeah. season lands on this point and more yeah. pressure during that we all yeah. these different variables so that, I, I think the human nature is I'm in a hurry, I'm a little bit lazy, I'm a little bit overconfident, and <laughs> I go there, and I haven't done enough current homework. Yep. And I, I I waste two or three days before finally it's like the, you know, the light comes on. Hey, knucklehead, guess what? There's a foot of snow this year. It was bare dry when you were here last year. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Why did I think of that? Where are they? Oh, they might be lower in elevation this yeah. year. And so that, uh, in spite of, you know, I don't know how many elk hunts I've been on, you know, five or six years for eight years of doing the TV show and probably 20 more before that. So I don't know. It's that 50, 60 elk hunts. I, I'm so far from having it figured out. <laughs> I, I feel like, I, if I am uh, reading a 40-chapter book, I'm like on midway through the second chapter. <laughs> that's how I feel. Yep. And maybe I'm not, but that, that's kind of how I feel. So, well, we've talked covered an awful lot of stuff about elk hunting. Um, and if the audience wants you and I to talk more about elk hunting, hopefully they'll email you and I and, and we can put the headphones back on again. No, it, it's can, amazing how quickly the times go. I don't even feel like we've got into any of the right. the questions that that matter. You yeah. know, it's all, we've just scratched the surface here. There's so much that yeah. elk right. hunting's, it, it, once it gets in your blood, you can just ramble on for hours and hours about it. And, yeah. So before we go on to the next thing, and the next thing is going to be, I want to know what Corey Jacobson is up to. Um, we're going to pay a bill here while we're uh, talking. Uh in the podcast world, you know, advertisements are not a 30-second commercial where someone can DVR through it. So, <laughs> I, I, and 
And before I talk about this, I want people to understand that I am probably the biggest equipment snob I know of. Um, and not from I got to have the most expensive equipment. I got to have stuff that works for me. And I turn down way, way more equipment offers than I ever accept. Every piece of equipment that I use in our show or that we promote on the website, I used it for a couple of years for free before I decided, all right, we might. You know, I look at my Leupold rifle scopes. Since I was, you know, a little piker, I had Leupold rifle scopes on my rifles. It, it, it's not because all of a sudden Randy decided, oh, I'm going to do a TV show and I want someone to pay me to use Leupold rifle scopes. When Kenetrek boots started, I... I was wearing Kenetrek boots the day they almost the day they started selling those boots. And yeah, four or five years later, I started a TV show and I've been offered to use so many different types of boots since then. No. And the reason I say that is when you hear Randy Newberg make a pitch about a piece of equipment, uh, it's because it works. And Corey, you are involved in the pro staff of Sitka Gear. And you know that when Randy started this TV show, for the first three years, I went out and I bought every brand of what was considered high-quality, you know, performance-type clothing that was on the market. And I use, I, I bought sets for me and my guest hunters out of my own pocket. So <laughs> anyone who prices, you know, performance clothing knows that that's an investment. Yep. And time and again... I had asked the guest hunters, well, what, what's your verdict? Sitka gear. Sitka gear. And at, at the time, you know, the guys at Sitka gear is like, Randy, who? <laughs> you know? And I had other companies saying, boy, we, you know, we'll give you free gear and we'll pay you some money. But I wasn't interested in what paid me the most. And that's probably I've never made any money in the TV <laughs> show. Here I am, a CPA, and my wife always says, Randy, because we review the financial statements at the end of every year, kind of doing our own little huddle. And she's like, would you advise one of your CPA clients to operate this way? Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> but so the point of that is, before I, I talk about this next product, is if Randy Newberg is telling you that he uses this, it's not, I, I really don't give two hoots about the money. I'm doing it because... That's what I think people should be using. So, well, and I'll just I'll, I'll add a little bit more to that. Randy is tough on equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Randy abuses stuff, and all the way from his truck to his tires to his bow to everything there. And if Randy talks about gear that lasts, it's going to last for anybody, not just Randy. So. <laughs> Corey saw first. First person example of that when we were hunting. I don't know I, the the abuse we put on my truck, my tires. I a couple times my bow got used for a, I think a pole vault to get across a creek. <laughs> it's you know, but I I buy gear to use it. And I don't know if you, do you have an arrow sponsor? No, you need one. Oh, do I? Well, just after losing so many arrows shooting at grouse, you've, <laughs> that's got to be a, an expense. So. It, it is, and and I have these judo points. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I need some of those head chopper offers. Oh, what, those are what, what was that? that those G five small game head. Yeah, what was yeah, that they're just man. holy cow. That's like the guillotine there, man. Whew. But anyhow, man, it's taken me six minutes to get to this <laughs> this next plug I want to talk to you about, and and it has to do with the cooler company. Uh, 
I spend 80 years or 80 days a year living out of coolers. It's just what we do. And I've tried them all. I, you know, I get them sent to me. I've got a cooler full of, or a, a shop full of the El Cheapo broken coolers. I've tried the high end. I've tried everything you can think of. And this last year I used Orion coolers and they are made in Tennessee and the, the parent company is Jackson Kayaks. And those of you who are kayakers, I talked to some kayakers. I'm like, well, what's the deal with Jackson Kayaks? And they're like, oh man, they are it in the kayak world. I, I, I don't, I'm not a kayaker. So, so I went and I told them, all right, send me some. And I, and Randy's kind of this, I'm always the skeptic <laughs> and they send them to me and I'm using them and I'm using them. I'm like, you know, this feature's really well thought out. Wow, this latch doesn't stick out like the other high-end coolers I've looked at before. Wow, they've got these divider compartments that actually make sense. They're exactly the size of what a case of bottled waters would be. It's, I'm like, you know, someone was thinking about this. All right, let me see if I can abuse them to the point of no end. So we took them out this year, and they just, oh, boy, they, they really got the beat over but they withstood it they they perform marvelously um I, a, a common event for randy is i go to new mexico or arizona and i live in a tent and i gotta have ice that lasts for a week while i'm down there because if i kill something i'm driving it. i'm not one of these tv guys who gets to fly everywhere i gotta drive <laughs> everywhere and it's you know 20 hour drive back home to montana from new mexico and i gotta have that bowl on ice uh and so what I usually do is I take a cooler full of frozen milk jugs and just one cooler. We don't open it. We put it like a saddle blanket over it and it stays in the shade. And I thought, well, I'm going to replicate that with these Orion coolers. So I went to Colorado and I filled one of the coolers full of frozen milk jugs and I left it in the hot motel room for seven days. 24, I mean, this isn't like in the evening it gets cold in the motel room and in the day it warms <laughs> regulated. up temperature right this was hot and i'm after the seventh day i'm like boy i bet you there's a lot of water in that in those milk jugs no hardly any i was so impressed i i could not believe but they got two and a half inches of of this premium insulation everywhere around the cooler uh it's it and, and you guys are going to hear me talk about these coolers uh in future podcasts so I, i'm not gonna bore you to death here but Randy Newberg is telling you, uh, and as Corey said, I am a, a serious abuser of equipment. <laughs> the Orion coolers that I tried this year impressed the heck out of me, and they're something I'm going to be using going forward. So if you want to check them out, go to orioncoolers.com, uh, and I think you'll be as impressed as I was. So anyhow, that's uh, every once in a while we got to try – pay a bill here every you know, every so often so we're gonna spend i'm gonna give us about 20 30 minutes Corey. we're gonna talk about elk101.com and you know some of you i know are saying newberg you're an idiot you have this forum called hunttalk.com <laughs> and you're gonna bring a guy on your podcast and just open the mic and let him say anything he wants to say about his forum and his website, elk101.com. 
But I'm going to steal all of your forum members and bring them to ours. And are you? You'll, yeah. Okay. It's, well, because that's what happens, right? I mean, we're yeah. competitors in that, and it's yeah, it's all all me or all you. So. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, all one or the other. And so, for those of you who don't understand the way Corey and I look at things, we're you know, there's I call it abundance thinkers and scarcity thinkers, and I think Corey and I both subscribe to the idea of abundance that you know someone can be participating in two different forums and it's not the end of the world and I, and the reality is they are they, yeah they so. are and our combined you and i collaborating on things i think helps all those members i would hope you Rather, know it, it's a, the principle of if there's two boats there on the same water and the water goes up both the boats go up yeah and that's that's how i look at it. like you said you know i'd rather be one who builds rather than trying to spend my time knocking somebody else down thinking that I, that's how I'm getting ahead. It's yeah. So anyhow, for those of you wondering why a guy <laughs> who owns hunttalk.com, a, a, a big public land Western hunting forum, would invite and, and want to know what a guy who owns a, a, an elk-specific forum, elk101.com, why I do that. What Corey and I just told you is is why I, I want to do that. I want you guys to know what Corey's up to at Elk 101. So with that, tell me what's going on in the Corey Jacobson world <laughs> and the Elk 101 world. What what are we going to be seeing in the next, I don't know if you want to say one month, three months, six months, a year, sure. what, however you want to say it. Yeah. So, you know, Elk 101 was created several years ago as a one-page website to get people to sign up to go to a seminar that I was asked to do, a class, a six-hour elk hunting class. And I said, well, if I'm going to do that, I need to get paid for my time. And so we created a, a website. We put a PayPal pay here button on it, a picture of me with an elk, and said, sign up for the class at this time. And it was a, a WordPress blog type page. We had comments enabled and people started asking questions. You know, what are you going to cover in this class? I, I don't know how to call elk. You're going to be going over that. So we started answering those questions. Pretty soon I'm posting video clips and pictures. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we hit a million page views on this web page called elk101.com. And it grew off of the premise of it's educational. I wanted to share my experiences of elk hunting with others who were either intimidated or wanted to improve, whatever it was. I wanted a resource for others to get them excited about what I'm excited about. I, I have a passion for elk hunting, and I know there's a lot of other people out there that want to try it. And like we talked about earlier, they go out, they, they get discouraged because of their expectations. They don't have the confidence. They don't have the skills. So that's, that's what Elk 101 was created to be is – not a place to say, hey, look at me, I'm a great elk hunter. Not a place to brag about scores or anything, just to share that passion and, and that elk hunting knowledge. Um, fast forward a couple of years from there, we create a magazine, we launch a magazine, things get busy, and we ended up selling elk101.com uh, about a year and a half ago and focused on the magazine. And as I'm focusing on the magazine, I'm realizing that things are going digital a little bit faster than, than maybe I had thought. And my ideas and my thought process is starting to rapidly go digital and recognize that, hey, elk101.com was a really good platform for all of these cool projects that I have lined up in my mind. Um, so I just, the stars aligned. We sold Extreme Elk Magazine uh, to Elk Hunter Magazine and 
at the same time started down the road of becoming involved with Elk 101 um, through partnership, through ownership. And I'm super excited that just here in the last few days, uh, we've made it uh, final and I've actually purchased Elk 101 back. So I'm full ownership of Elk 101 back at the driver's seat of it. And I'm so excited for the projects we have because it's been five or six years in the making of developing some of these projects and getting them to the point where they're tangible, they have legs, and they're going to be pretty exciting. They are. And, and so Corey and I are out chasing elk in September in Montana. And we're uh, like two mad scientists trying to, <laughs> trying to solve this riddle of how do you inform, entertain, and educate a digital audience because in hunt talk i got i have the same thing yep. and we're launching our big youtube channel next month january 1st and that's gonna have you know a lot of the kind of stuff not elk specific but you know public land issues you know bag dumps of what gear we use and we are going to do one series out there called elk talk um, and what it is is every week i'm going to release a new video that walks a hunter through here's how you acquire tags Here's, here's all the options, all the states, explain all that, explain preference points versus bonus points. Then, okay, you drew a tag or didn't draw a tag, here's the over-the-counter options. And then kind of as the, the calendar rolls, have relevant video clips that say, okay, now you've got a tag, here's your scouting, Here, here's what you got to do for your what I call desk scouting or yep. e-scouting. Here's some skills you got to be thinking about. Here's some, you know, equipment issues here, blah, blah, blah. So that by the time late August rolls around, we've provided them kind of the whole video walkthrough of you should be able to go and kill a bull elk this year or, you know, at least improve Have your chances. Have the confidence to. Right. And so you're doing something that is going to be video intensive. There will be some uh, video components of it. Yep. And tell me what that is. Well, we can't, can't get can't let it out. Can't let it out yet. Can't let it out yet. But there, yes, it. My goal has always been to share the passion and the expertise, not expertise, experience that comes with that, so that that others can be confident. And right along those exact same lines, of there's no secrets. There's no. It's not a gimmick. I'm not. You know, we aren't trying to develop this product and then market a product and make people think this product is the golden ticket. <laughs> That's not it. What, what I'm trying to do is tap into these years of experience, put them on paper, digitally on paper, in a way that expresses the passion, that educates, and that breaks it down so no matter where somebody is in their elk hunting life, never been before, never had a desire to go, now it's, it's piqued their interest. That's me sharing that passion you've got to experience an elk bugling in your face at 10 yards if you've right. never done it oh. do it i can't i yeah. can't explain to, i can't put it into words i can't put it into emotion enough to say you just have to do it yeah. you have to do that whether it's that whether it's you've been 10 times and never killed an elk i've been there i've got that perspective whether it's i've killed one elk and the last three years i haven't what what am i doing wrong what can i do to get back to what i did right whether it's I kill an elk every year, but I need to learn a little bit more about calling. Whatever it is, we're going to touch that, and we're going to make sure that there's value um, 
available to those who want to improve, who want to learn, who want to go and do it. So when when is <laughs> when's all this going to be? So our our expectation is mid January. We're going to really of start 2016. Of 16, yeah. So coming right up here. Right, this podcast is going to air in early January. Yep. So so by the time you hear this, we're hoping to be within a couple of weeks creating a buzz. But what we want to do is not just spew out everything that we think you need to know. We want to find from the listeners and from our followers, what are the key points? What are the frustrations? What are the intimidations? We want their input. We want to find out what we can answer based on our experiences that will benefit them and have them help us create this process for them that we can then provide back. Cool. Well, it's, you know, just, just to give you a, a really quick example of it, if you tried to explain something in detail on one topic, you could easily write, you know, an article, a magazine article is usually 1,500 words right. to 2,000. The component of this, the module that we're doing on tracking, that includes anatomy, analyzing the anatomy of an elk so that when you find a drop of blood, you know where your hit is, the amount of blood, all of that. It's 10,000 words. Wow. It is video clips. It is diagrams. And these aren't just, you know, somebody sketching on a napkin, uh, uh, yeah. here's the shoulder blade. It's, we're trying to make this the most simple yet detailed product that's going to, somebody's going to pick it up and say, there's value here and I'm a better elk hunter because of it. Yeah. And it's not something, you know, you and I are going on very parallel paths here with the idea that your product and my product combined are going to be great. Right. They aren't going to compete. They're going to supplement. And right. so that's, you know, uh, we both love elk hunting and right. we want to share that. And we it, want others to. And as you were saying that, that's exactly what was going through my mind is I think the reason Corey and I hit it off so good uh, wherever, whenever we get together is because we share that passion for wanting more elk hunters and i don't want them in the drainage i hunt in which is why i don't give out the gp but yes we want to increase the number of elk hunters because we're we're on the same team this is this is a teammate thing not a competitor thing yeah our competition i watched the movie everest recently and uh oh phenomenal movie but there's a quote in there that says we don't need competition between people there's enough competition between the mountain and the people and the mountain always has the last word. And when it comes to elk, I just, it resonated. It was like, we don't need to be competing as elk hunters. We don't need to be competing at that level. Our competition is with the elk. Yeah. When I step in the ring, it's me and the elk. It's not me and the guy that's camped on the road three miles. I don't care about my elk being bigger than his or getting one before him. It's me and the elk, and the elk always has the last word. <laughs> you know, whether it's an arrow going after him right after he has the last word or him running away with the last word, but... You know, that's, I just, I don't subscribe to that competitive, I'm very competitive, but I make sure that, that that passion, that competition, that energy is channeled in the in the right yeah. way. For me, I compete against myself. Yep. I, if, and my wife is like, you can be the most competitive SOB I know. And she <laughs> says that not about, and, and sometimes it manifests as being bullheaded and stubborn. Yep. And I mean, for me, part, I guess, you could almost say when I came to the SHOT Show in this city of Las Vegas in 
2008, I got laughed out of the shot show when I said I was going to do a D at the time it was going to be a DVD series of self-guided public land hunting. <laughs> and my wife hates it when someone says, and when she's, especially if she's there and they say, well, that can't be done. She's like, oh no, <laughs> don't tell this guy it can't be done. And because if it's something I'm passionate about, I, I view, I set my own standards and I'm competing against what I've set for yeah. my standards. And I'm always happy for everyone else's success. I, I mean, without exception, if someone, and you and I both get it, me, you know, someone comes with their phone and they're like, you want to see the, the bull I shot or the cow I shot? I'm always ecstatic for yep. him. I, and I don't care how big it is. I don't care if it was on public land or private land. I don't care if it was guided or self-guided. The fact that they were out elk hunting or deer hunting, you know, in this case, elk hunting, that's what I'm excited about. Totally. I mean. And that they're excited about it, that they're excited. Their success is not defined by me or anyone else but them. Right. And if they pull out a picture of a cow elk that they shot with a rifle on a private ranch somewhere and they're excited about it, yeah. who am I to judge them and say, well, that's not a successful hunt. Right. I'm happy with them. And that's, you know, we, we aren't competing against each other. When we do that, we lose. There's never going right. to be a winner in right. that. Hunting loses. Yep. When, when hunters make it a competition of back to that quantitative thing we start right, stated right at the beginning, hunting loses. Totally. Because you are trying to overlay your personal values, your personal experiences to what someone else's values and experiences are. Or trying to place them above them, which, you know, the, the argument of rifle hunters versus muzzleloader versus modern archery versus traditional archery, pretty soon we're all divided and trying to carve out our piece and make it primary and say these guys don't deserve it because, you know, right. I'm a I'm a traditional archery hunter. The modern guys have an advantage, so I should get the prime rut. Let's work together. Let's yeah. be on the same team and try to accomplish what we're trying to do without taking away from somebody else. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I, and I suspect most of our listeners are probably there nodding their head. And, and I hope, if anything, to the people listening, it's refreshing to see two guys like you and I who easily could make excuses about why we're competitive or why why business-wise, oh, I'm, I'm not going to share anything with Corey right. or whatever. I mean, when you had the magazine, you felt comfortable calling me and saying, hey, Randy, write an article for me. I'm like, yeah, cool. Comfortable. I, it was, <laughs> you know, it's, so I, I hope that one, our collaborative things that we work on are, it's going to be, people are going to see it. I mean, the episode that we filmed this year is going to be on the show. So they're going to see us collaborating there. We're going to hopefully collaborate. Much more. Yeah. <laughs> on other things. So if you guys hear Randy and Corey, uh, giving each other grief, uh, Corey, uh, telling jokes about Randy's absolute, uh, schizophrenic, almost, uh, crazy grouse habits. Uh, that's all right. <laughs> you know, the, the, the greatest thing about that experience for me wasn't your, your OCD when you see a grouse. It wasn't the jumping out of the truck with the truck still rolling down the road. It was coming back like a whipped puppy and saying, I missed and my wife is going to really, really make me sleep outside 
when I get home. If she finds out I missed that grouse, we've got to delete the footage of me missing because if she sees that, I'm not going to be welcome back home. I've, Corey, can you please go kill a grouse and, and let me tell my wife I got it? I mean, it was there was fear in the eyes. I can't even imagine how passionate your wife must be about having grouse for dinner. She, uh, I forgot about that part. Uh, <laughs> and it got to the point, folks, when uh, one morning we went to one spot and we didn't hear any bugles. I told Corey, well, it's still just breaking daylight. Let's drive up to this other spot and see if we're hearing any bugles and we'll jump out and go for a hike. And we're driving down this old logging road, and I hear Corey say, uh-oh. And I'm thinking, like, I got a flat tire, or he forgot something back at camp. And I didn't say anything for about two minutes. I'm like, you all right? What was that? He said, oh, I saw a grouse back there, and I was hoping that you didn't see it because we certainly weren't going to get to the trailhead in time to get these elk if they would be there. So it, I don't know. It was a ton of fun. I Gosh, I, I hope we get to do it again for sure. Um, it just, I know that that's one of the beauties of hunting. Well, and it goes back to, we didn't kill an elk on that hunt, but it was one of the most enjoyable hunts that that I've been on. And it's just that adventure, the experience, the, the camaraderie, the company, the, just the whole thing. Yes. We had a tag in our pocket. Yes. I had a weapon in my hand. My goal was to kill something. We didn't do it. That doesn't mean the hunt was a failure. Right. And and I when he just said my goal was to kill something, I'm gonna call BS on that because that first <laughs> night, that that elk that was standing down there bugling at you at what thirty-two yards in the wide open for four minutes. Yeah. I mean, we almost had to change batteries in the camera. It stood there yelling at him for so long. But it was a first night. Uh, I know, but for you to say you wanted to kill something, I don't know about that. I think you wanted to milk it for all you could, <laughs> which I, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty as charged on that also, but. We did. We hunted every available minute of that. Hunt. We did. We hunted hard in that period of time. That's, yep. that's for sure. But it's, uh, it's not something that I hope is a one and done. So, well, folks, we've uh, we've kept you a long time. Uh, I can make a couple commitments here uh, that I will invite Corey to be back on this podcast, just because I I think he's got so much uh, to add to what we do. Uh, you know, a lot of times you listen to the Hunt Talk podcast, and we get into this ugliness of politics. And the reason we do is because it's it's important to our future. Um, but I don't want our podcast to just be nothing but ragging on politicians and, and all the doom and gloom that comes with public policy issues. And so this, like some of our past podcasts and certainly many of our future podcasts, has been about information, about friendship, about having fun. And so I'm, I, I hope that all of you like this. Uh, you, all of you have learned in following the podcast that out on Hunt Talk, we have these forum threads that talk about, hey, let us know what you want for guests. Let us know what you want for topics. Give us feedback about the podcast. So when this one airs, uh, I'll forward the link to you, Corey, and you can see what the feedback is. Maybe, maybe they're going to say, you know what? You two guys, you're, you're like grumpy old man. You're like <laughs> Gustafson and whoever the other guy was on grumpy old man. And, uh, I, I don't think that'll be the case. But uh, you got any parting thoughts, comments? No, I just, you know, I've respected Randy for since, since I've known him. Just a, a wonderful steward of the sport that we love, 
the lifestyle that, that we embrace and to be able to share six days hunting, um, you learn a lot about a person hunting. And I, my, one of my biggest fears is when people spend six days with me, they're going to find out what I'm really like and they're not going <laughs> to like me. And with Randy, it just, it, it multiplied and exponentially increased my respect for him. So I just, I, I'm grateful to have this opportunity to share an hour and a half with you in a hotel room in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's flattering, Corey, and I appreciate that. But I, but I agree with you. You know, in hunting, you really, you're going to have those moments of, of uh, challenge. And that's where it's easy to be the good guy when everything's going well. It's easy to be the happy dude when the elk are just walking out in front of you every minute next to the truck. Yep. You know, and, and that's... Uh, we all go through that process of figuring out who are we going to hunt with, who are we not going to hunt with. And and I think we end up being attracted to people who kind of share the same value systems, share the same motives for why we hunt and what we want out of out of the hunting experience. And, and I, I, I will agree that it, as much as, well, and this is another plug for a company that I don't get sponsored for. As much as Corey and I hit it off, so great elk hunting, the dude understands what Dairy Queen is all about. <laughs> <laughs> Where we were hunting, there was a Dairy Queen about a half mile away. Or a half I was going to say, it wasn't a half yeah, mile. Half it hour was, away. It was a morning hunt away. Yeah, and anybody who knows Randy Newberg, any, well, anyone who grew up in the Midwest, and I don't know. Are there a lot of Dairy Queens in Idaho? I yeah. know there's two in Twin Falls because I stop at both of them. On oh, there's one through. just right down the road from our house. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that that should be a criteria for selecting. You know, some people say, well, I'm going to buy a house in this neighborhood because the schools are good. I want to be within <laughs> 10 minutes of a Dairy Queen. You know, schools are important, but, hey, let's get the priorities here. And so, in addition to having a lot of fun hunting, Corey and I share the same Dairy Queen problem. And and I judge a guy by if, if I hang out with some guy and he's like I don't do Dairy Queen, like, you know. And Randy went. Randy yeah. went right for the jugular on this to find out what kind of a friend he was hunting with. When we pulled up to Dairy Queen at ten thirty in the morning, he said, "You want an extra large blizzard?" Yeah. Uh, I, hey, that that was kind of like the, the the poorly disguised question, yeah. just to sort it out. All right, is is Corey really the guy? I think he is. And what did he get? He got like a double chocolate Oreo. No, no, no. It was, was it? pumpkin pie. Oh, that's what, yeah, that's pumpkin what it was. Pumpkin pie. They just announced the pumpkin pie. And yeah. So, between, between that and candy cane Oreo blizzards, I don't yeah, know. There's, yeah, yeah. I have to work out. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, folks, I, I hope you realize that neither Corey or I take ourselves very seriously <laughs> we do take our dairy queen really seriously <laughs> i do take putting grouse in my wife's freezer very seriously and uh that's that's probably as much as we're going to be able to impart for for life lessons today <laughs> but i i thank all of you for listening i thank Corey for being on here uh again you can go to his uh website and his forum elk101.com uh, and as always, you can go to randynewberg.com and you'll get all the details about our TV show on Sportsman Channel, this podcast, Randy Newberg Unfiltered, um, the Hunt Talk Forum, which is hunttalk.com. And starting January 1st, early January of 2016, about the time this podcast airs, 
you're going to see all of our old On Your Own Adventures episodes are going to be on our YouTube channel. All of our Fresh Tracks episodes today are going to be on our YouTube channel. There's going to be some episodes that are in the can that have never been on TV. Uh, some years we end up with more than we need. And so those are going to be there. There's going to be a lot of tips, tactics. So if you would go out, be so kind as to go out and subscribe to the Randy Newberg Hunter YouTube channel, uh, that that's going to help us. It's going to help you. And as we start doing all this whole series of elk talk and everything else, you, you'll get notified of, of where that is. So anyhow, folks, thanks for listening from wonderful Las Vegas. I say that kind of tongue in cheek. Uh, <laughs> Corey, thanks a lot. Thank you. I appreciate it.